This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Why is there a beautiful? Because we would be able to ignore the truth otherwise. And, and the beautiful is the way in which the spirit kind of gets past our defenses. Right? Like we, we, we have all of this built-in resistance, almost immunity to the truth. And the beautiful gets past our immunity. It's a, it's a good virus. What do art and faith have to say to one another? And maybe what are the limits of each? Often in a Protestant evangelical tradition, we tend to privilege the life of the mind. And we aren't often aware of how art and beauty actually usher us into a deeper understanding, knowledge, and experience of God. In this conversation, I talk with Chris Green about his most recent book, All Things Beautiful, about how Jesus is the source of beauty and how that affects everything. Listen in. It's a great conversation. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. All right, it's fun to welcome Chris Green. Chris E.W. Green to the podcast. <laughs> he is a professor of public theology, and he has recently released a book called All Things Beautiful, an Aesthetic Christology. So thanks for being with us, Chris. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm not one to leave any pretension untried, but <laughs> the fact is there is a Chris E. Green who okay. I put for a while I published as Chris C. Green until I started getting invitations to speak at conferences on Karl Barth and the doctrine of angels. And it turns out there is a Chris Green theologian, Chris E. Green, who writes about Karl Barth and angels. And <laughs> that's not me. So hence the EW. I love it. Well, thanks for being here. Um, the Finding Holy podcast, we're really trying to help folks connect the dots between big ideas and their everyday holy lives. So we've got lots of big ideas in your book published by University Press. Uh, tell us, could you unpack those for those of us who may be not with not having advanced degrees or it's been a while? Could you unpack some of the, those words in your subtitle? What is aesthetics? What is Christology? Yeah, so aesthetics is is really reflection on what makes the beautiful beautiful. Like what what mm -hmm. why are we drawn to this and repelled by that? And of course, Christology is reflection on who is Jesus and what has he done? Why does he matter for us? So what what I'm trying to do in this book, and it hopefully will be the first of a trilogy. We'll see. I mean, I'm putting myself oh, cool. on record here, so we'll see if, if yeah. I'm actually able to accomplish it. Are the other ones on the good and the true? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So it's it's about uh, the, the transcendentals, as they're called, right? The, the mm -hmm. good, the true, and the beautiful. I started with the beautiful, and the next is hopefully going to be 
uh, an examination of the good, and then finally the true. And they'll be built around different kind of theological projects. So this was a Christology. The next was a aesthetic Christology. The next one will be a biblical Christology. And I will talk about the good and kind of trace, or again, this is what I'm intending to do, I should say, yes. like uh, to trace the ways in which scripture teaches us about the good through the story of wanderers in scripture. So people who mm. are on pilgrimage or on journey, Jesus as the wandering Jew. And then the final would be a dogmatic Christology where I look at the doctrine of God specifically as it's revealed in Jesus. And that would examine what we mean by what makes the true true. So all, all of this, that that's the big idea for the project, right? And, yeah. and so what I'm trying to do in this book in particular is to think about beauty and the beautiful and the ways in which the story of Jesus and, and the figure of Jesus kind of questions a lot of that, right? Um, the ways mm -hmm. in, so probably this was not the first chapter that I wrote or the first chapter that, that I thought of in terms of crafting the book, but I think probably the hinge chapter for the book is the beauty will not save the world chapter because I'm, that's where I'm kind of right at the heart of aesthetics, right? At, at this question yeah. of what is the beautiful, what makes it beautiful and how does it work? And I'm arguing that mm -hmm. Jesus is the one who sets the the terms, right? Jesus is the one right. who makes beautiful, beautiful. And, and I think that that's a way in right to what I'm trying to do. What I was working through, I think, as I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are the limits of the beautiful? Yeah, I mean, so this, of course, is as long as human. I mean, beings, I know, like, yeah, yeah you, right, exactly. I, I realize this is a ridiculous question to ask yeah. you and expect no, you to answer on a podcast, but but I think it's it's helpful for us to even figure out. Okay, how do we take you know thousands of years of aesthetic debate, right, and and figure out what does it look like on an average Tuesday? Absolutely, and that's part of what I'm the reason I'm interested in it is because it's like impossible to answer right in, in any right. short way that's part of the, the, the attraction. But I, I think the idea that the beautiful is what pleases us, right. That, that's the simplest way, mm -hmm. right. That the beautiful is mm -hmm. what I find pleasing, but of course, mm -hmm. Christian theologians and not just Christian theologians. I mean, anyone who's given it any thought will immediately will say, well, it can't be that simple, right. Whatever the beautiful is, it's something else, right. It, mm -hmm. there is an aspect or a facet of it that might be about what attracts me. But of course, the beautiful is always more than that. And I think right. for Christians, of course, the story of Jesus is that it was not all that attractive for many people, especially mm -hmm. once they, they figured out what he was really doing and who he really was. So I, I think probably the way to think about it is that there are, for Christians at least, is that there are no limits to the beautiful because the beautiful is ultimately made by who God is, the infinite one, right? So the beautiful kind of can touch us at any time from any angle, right? It can kind of mm -hmm. break forth. Thomas Aquinas talks about medieval Catholic theologian, talks yep. about the beautiful as the kind of shining forth of glory. God's, God's glory is beautiful in that it shines forth. So that, sh that, that shining might happen at any point. And in the opening chapter of the book, I talk about, uh, I pick up on Terrence Malick's films mm -hmm. and the ways in which he talks about shining like we we long to see all things shining he says in the in his war movie mm -hmm. and i think probably that's the best at least where i would start with there are no limits to the beautiful and precisely for that reason we might encounter beauty at any time it might shine mm -hmm. out from 
anyone's face or any, you know, it might be a sunset, but it might not be, right? It might be my son's drawing. It might be a poem I read. It might be, you know, someone's tone of voice. It might, who knows, right? That the beauty, the beautiful can shine out at any time. You know, there's a lot of things about beauty, right? Just being um, somehow less complex, you know, like this idea that it it simply pleases um, kind of an anesthetized Netflix Hallmark movie. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> right, the, the, you know, yeah. that's kind of what we long for um, sometimes, I think, when we think about beauty. But, you know, how did Jesus as incarnate beauty ruffle that notion and how do we dwell with that like on a normal day you know like how do we how do we you know experience transcendence god breaking in the experience of god who is beautiful and yet at the same time that there is this really unnerving quality of beauty absolutely the ways in which it's it's radically disruptive or can be right right again assuming that beauty is the, the shining forth of God's goodness the, the, and God's truth at any time, it might be comforting, it might bring solace, it might settle us, but it also might radically overturn our lives. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's what we see with Jesus, is that he is attractive to some, especially those who are the most desperately in need. He seems to be attracted to the innocent, right? The people who are have no defenses. But for most normal people, Jesus is very off-putting, right? Very bewildering. And I think that's, I think that's how the beautiful works. It's interesting. You bring up that, the kind of pure flicks, hallmark notion of the beautiful. I I do think that in a lot of circles, broadly called evangelical circles, there is a kind of appetite for entertainment that soothes us it's almost like a Mm -hmm. kind of moral painkiller like we want stories movies that leave us reassured that the world is predictable and that the good guys win in the end and we know who the good guys are and Mm -hmm. i don't think jesus is at all interested in that and i don't think scripture is at all interested in that so i i think for me the beautiful cuts right across all of whatever that is, like whatever name we're going to give those stories, those movies, those paintings, you know, that there's a, there's a kind of, as you know, there's a whole market for (laughs) whatever that taste is. It's very kitschy and Mm -hmm. it's, there's a a kind of absurdity to it that I think is designed. Maybe this will illustrate the point. Several years ago, my, my family and I, we went with my in-laws to, Dollywood. We lived in Tennessee (laughs) at the time. Mm -hmm. And of course, as a kid, I went to Branson several times with my parents. And there's a kind of aesthetic in those places, right? That there's a, it's kitschy, Mm -hmm. it's nostalgic. Mm -hmm. It's playful. It's aware of itself as silly, right? And one of the things we did was a kind of dinner and a show. And the show was really tracing the whole history of the U.S., that starting back, you know, there's just Buffalo on the plains and they have live Buffalo in the room. And, and then they have native dancers who are like kind of just referred to as Indians and in different paint dancing in black light. And then they have the settlers who come and then it all builds up to the civil war. 
But this entire story is told without any reference to slavery. What is said about the natives, and this is almost exactly the line, I think, that the natives went the way of the buffalo. That was the way it's, it was named wow. in this quote-unquote show. And I'm, and I'm sitting there, of course, I've got my kids with me, and I'm I'm <laughs> melting down, right? I'm so yeah. angry and, and grieved. Anger is not even the right word. Like, it was deeply grieving. And I realized, like, the silliness, the kitschiness is the point. Because it's mm-hmm. it's pitched in such a way that they're not trying to be serious about telling you that history. But they are telling you the history, right? And yeah. I think there's a way in which our culture, here, I'm, when I say our, here, I'm thinking broadly about evangelical circles. We've developed a taste for that kind of thing. It's not quite serious. And so we can dismiss criticisms of it as, oh, it's just a show. Why are you upset? Right. right? This yep. is just for kids. But we, we've we developed a taste for that in entertainment that reinforces this moral forgetfulness, right? Where we are holding the truth at arm's length. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the beautiful mm-hmm. won't let us do that, right? Yeah. Th- that, yeah. That's what I hear in the shining forth is it's, it's a glory that takes us off our feet. And mm-hmm. we need stories and movies and paintings and sculptures and architecture that does that, that, that won't let mm-hmm. us have that moral distance that that kitschy, nostalgic Dollywood aesthetic gives us. Yeah, that's great. I think, you know, that there's a sense in which beauty forces us to reckon with truth. Yes, that's exactly right. I think that, that, that's, mm. that's, yes, that's exactly what I, what I, at least my instincts are. That's what, why there is the beautiful. Why is there the beautiful? Because we would be able to ignore the truth otherwise. And and the mm. beautiful is the way in which the spirit kind of gets past our defenses, right? Like we, we, mm-hmm. we have all of this built in mm-hmm. resistance, almost immunity to the truth. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. beautiful gets past our immunity. It's a, it's a good virus. Mm-hmm. When I talk about kind of you know, my own idealized version of what I hope my, my own writing life will look like. I, I talk a lot about ideally, I think analysis is really fun and, you know, I, I, I love it and I think it's important and it's, it's good that we do things that are analytical and thoughtful and, but I'm always hopeful that, you know, most of the, the things that I write are, are pulling us more towards, you know, the, the kingdom of God rather than just simply analyzing what's wrong. Um, Absolutely. And I think, but Definitely. I think, you know, and that's a big that's a big qualification for, to try to to try to get at. But I think what you're talking about beauty then is that it it has that pull effect um, in that way. Yes, right. Yeah. So I, I've been using Aquinas's image of the shining forth, but I think you could you could shift the metaphor to a kind of wooing, mm-hmm. a, a, a kind of. In fact, my own experience, which I talk about a little bit in the book, when I was a young kid, I mean, eight or nine years old, and I'm I'm in the museum with my parents and they, they find me, I'm standing, looking at this painting. I'm transfixed. I'm fixed, right? Mm -hmm. It caught me. It held me. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. I mean, I didn't have any analytical skills. I was eight or nine years old. Right. right? I mean, I had no, I didn't know what was happening to me, Mm -hmm. but the beautiful was holding me, right? Like grasping my attention. So yes, I, I definitely think that because as I've been saying, the beautiful is infinite then, and the, for those who haven't read it, I definitely recommend David Bentley Hart's The Beauty of the Infinite. I mean, that, it's that metaphysics that's underlying what I'm saying mm-hmm. here. 
that precisely for that, the the beautiful can do what we need to get to the truth, right? So it might be a push or it might be a pull, Mm -hmm. right? It might be a wooing or it might be a shout. Mm -hmm. It it might be, you know, the shining forth that Aquinas talks about, but it also might be the still small voice, right? Like the, what, what you can only hear once you're very quiet. Mm -hmm. And I think we we don't want to box beauty in, right? We, we want to have that sense in which it can get to us. We can't box it out. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. It, it will get to us. Mm-hmm. I love going for a walk. And it's not just moving my body. I find that walking, like neuroscientists have told us, is actually good for so much. The brain works differently. New neural pathways are created. We're more creative. And it's not just the brain. As we walk, we can actually grow and enlarge our souls. So I want to invite you this Lenten season to walk at a human pace. I am going to have a 40-day meditative companion for you as you go on a walk this Lenten season. I will read some scripture to you and ask you some thoughtful questions to help prepare not only your body, but your mind, heart, and soul as we all walk towards Easter this Lent. It'll be available for purchase on March 1st. And if you want a reminder, head to my website at aahales.com. To get a reminder, go to aahales.com so you will be walking with me at a human pace. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You, you talk a little bit, of course, not a little bit, you talk, the whole book is about how art and theology are in conversation. How, for, for many evangelicals, the idea of adding art or beauty perhaps feels a little bit foreign to them. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. What might be kind of some good starting places to begin to see the value of you know, this dialogue between art and theology? Yeah. One, one way of getting at this, and I'm not sure that I have exactly the words I want for it. In fact, I know I don't have exactly the words I want, but I do think there is a difference between using art to illustrate truths you're convinced of mm-hmm. and engaging in arts in ways you don't quite have language for appreciating, mm. right? So I, I, I think this is a, a really basic difference, although, again, I'm not articulating it precisely right. Maybe you can help me with that. I, 
I'm hoping you can feel what I'm mm-hmm. after. I think that in in our circles, we tend to appeal to novels or movies to illustrate something, mm-hmm. illustrate principles we think we believe. And I think there's something really dead about that. And I don't just mean intellectually dead. I mean morally dead, something deeply insensitive to the truth mm-hmm. when I'm kind of making raids on you know, a Toni Morrison novel or whatever else to illustrate something I'm already convinced of. Right? I think that mm. part of what we need is a way of engaging the arts that can be surprised, right? Like where we, where we can, the, you know, the beautiful can, can get to us rather than us getting to it. And I think that's mm. the fundamental difference. Like when we're illustrating with art, it's something we're managing, right? right. I'm in control. Right. I know what this means and I can use it to illustrate that. But when the beautiful is happening to me, I'm not in control. Like I'm, I'm not managing it. Mm-hmm. I'm being, I'm being, you know, knocked off my horse, so mm-hmm. to speak. And I think that, I don't think you can manufacture that, but I think you have to be open to it. I don't think that it's not anything right. you can predict. And that's one of the reasons I, I think our churches are, are kind of wary of it. Is I don't think we trust that. I think we want to be in control, and we're trying to build spiritualities that guarantee people they can be in control at all mm. time, at all times. When I think the, what Scripture is calling for is to live with a kind of openness in which what matters most you won't be able to control. Yeah, and that's perfectly good. Mm-hmm. And scary. <laughs> and scary. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's right. absolutely. It's absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. But. That's why I think there's such an emphasis on the fear of the Lord, right? So that the, the way that I hear that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is so in the churches that I've been around, right, they, they want to very quickly mitigate what that can mean, right? Like when we, when we say fear, we don't mean fear, right? And, and, and yes, sure. I mean, God certainly does not want us to be terrified of him, right? But I do think there's a way in which what, the reason scripture calls us to the fear of the Lord at the beginning of wisdom is that you have to have this sense that because the the Lord is there to be feared, nothing else really has to be feared, right? In in the out of controlness of life. And I think this is, in fact, how we live. David Milch, um, who's, you know, did NYPD Blue, did Deadwood. He's one of my favorite personalities, right? He's, he does great work, but he's also incredibly fascinating when he talks about writing and screenwriting and, he has a kind of conversion. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a pretty odd Christian, but he is deeply convinced about Jesus. So those of you who don't know Milch, you should definitely look him up. Um, sadly, right now he's he's suffering with Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. so we should pray for him. But he he did a show on HBO that did, did terribly uh, called John from Cincinnati, and the premise of the show was that there's going to be another nine eleven, and in the wake of that. 9-11, all people of Islamic faith and all people of kind of Arabic ethnicity are going to be killed. That there's going to be this mass global genocide in response to another 9-11. And that God sends an angel to the surfing community in Southern California <laughs> to start this kind of band of disciples to resist what's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? To, to prepare for the resistance. So it's like super bizarre <laughs> kind of premise. And the show from there just gets weirder. Like it's unbelievably odd, like impossibly odd 
there's a character named Barry the fairy, for instance, mm-hmm. for instance, and they're all, um, they're all quirky to the extreme, pretty terrible people, seemingly meaningless people. Uh, Lou Perry plays a, one of the characters, regardless, he goes on, Milch goes on the kind of late night circuit to explain the mm-hmm. show. Right. So HBO is trying to promote it. And it's just unpromotable, right? Like there's just no, <laughs> no way to sell people on this show. And Milch is on one of those late night talk shows. And the man says to him, whoever it was, I can't remember who the interviewer was, but he says, I love your show. I just have no idea what's happening in it. But it's super snarky, yeah, yeah. right? But Milch, you know, doesn't miss a beat. And he says, and that's different from your real life in what way? Hmm. Like, like that's the point, yeah, right? right? That, Actually, life is open. Like we are always vulnerable. We are anything could happen at any time. We tell ourselves all kinds of lies to obscure that mm-hmm. fact. But the fact is, there is a living God, and we live in a world that is not manageable. Right. And there are things we can manage, and managing those things gives us the illusion that we're in control. Sure. But the fact is, we are not in control. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Art that is doing what it should be, art that's true to its calling, is reminding us you're not in control. Right? Like, like this is not what you think it is. So that that to me seems one of the markers of of the beautiful. Mm-hmm. So how does that look in your own life, Chris? Like, obviously you're studying these things, you know, and you're mm-hmm. you're viewing paintings and movies, and you can control a little bit. I'm gonna get a little meta here. <laughs> you can control it by writing yes. a book. <laughs> absolutely listen that's exactly right <laughs> but that's yeah right. so what does that look like experientially then for you in having published something in black and white and yet believing that there is this kind of openness this knock you off your horse version of beauty yeah so i think some of it is the grief that comes in having finished a book like this because there's always another story yeah. another like like that that experience of being knocked down or pulled in or yep. gripped, it's ongoing, right? So whenever you write write a book about those experiences, it's a it's going to be at best a partial witness, yeah. right? Because there's always that's always ongoing. But I think what what I was aspiring to do in the book is simply to bear witness to the fact that that tells us something about Jesus, right? This is not really a book about aesthetics, period. Right. It's a book about Jesus, right? And it's asking us, what does the aesthetic experience, both the making of art and the receiving of it, like, what does that experience tell us about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing? So it, it is a book of, of witness and like all witness, right? It is itself called into question. But I, I think I'm certainly not trying to have a kind of final word, a final philosophical word on this is what the beautiful is, and this is how it works. Simply saying, I think that this experience of the beautiful as the this infinite possibility breaking out at every turn to bring the truth to bear on us, that this this does tell us something about who Jesus is and how how he is known. Mm-hmm. That's that's I think at least that's what I was aspiring to. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. And what um you structure the book too in terms of the liturgical year. So tell us um, a little bit about that ordering structure and why you find it helpful as we talk about, yeah, the life of Christ as well as, you know, the life of the church. Yeah. So part of it is, I mean, I was raised very 
free church, right? So independent Pentecostal holiness folk who were allergic to anything that smelled Catholic, right? And right. liturgy, they would say, was certainly Catholic. But as I became an adult, and not only as my role as professor, but also as pastor, I fell in love with the kind of wisdom that is embedded in Christian liturgical tradition, and mm-hmm. including the ways in which the year is ordered by the story of Jesus, right? So we begin with Advent, expecting the coming of Jesus. We celebrate Christmas and Epiphany, the revealing of him, you know, the year. And so when I was thinking about the beautiful, it struck me that liturgy is the place where theology and art meet first for Christians, right? That's what liturgy is, right? It's a kind of artful witness to what we're convinced of is true about God. And that it is storied, right? I mean, this is the story of Jesus, the expectation of his coming and his coming written into time, a time that we experience over and over and over again, right? So that we, Mm -hmm. that's another thing that marks I think the distortions of spirituality that we we see in mm-hmm. our circles that not only are we trying to make everything manageable and creating a kind of aesthetic that will give us that we're also flattening time so that the Christian life is kind of this right ascending arc toward right better and better greater and greater enlightenment progress come on <laughs> exactly precisely yeah, right. whereas I think the wisdom of the Christian year is you're always coming back to where you've been before yeah Hopefully you're seeing it differently. Hopefully you're you're a slightly different person. But I mean, we've had Advent and we're going to have it again, right? And right. that that is deeply convincing for me. Like that that there is something profoundly cyclical about life with God and and life, right? Because that is life with God. And though I think the Christian calendar, the Christian liturgical tradition, captures some of that. Hmm. Hmm. I think that's great. I think that's, it's helpful. I think, you know, as we're talking about beauty, there's both the sense of it's really ordinary, right. And really mundane too. You know, um, and it can yes. be as well as transformative and violent and, you know, like, like grace itself. And so uh, there's something just there's really a... beautiful about it being both of those things and Jesus being both those things. Absolutely. And I, I think, and I, hopefully this comes through in the book, but I think one of the things we have to be careful about is defining the limits of the beautiful in such a way that we're simply projecting our taste hmm. onto reality. Right? Hmm. So, you know, it may be that I'm, I'm drawn to say Cormac McCarthy, and I am, I, I love Cormac McCarthy novels, and someone else is drawn to Steinbeck or whatever else. I mean, the very different aesthetics there mm-hmm. but in terms of what jesus is doing i mean one one is not truer than the other right one right. is not more in touch with reality than the other we can't let style deceive us i think and i say that to say here i think part of your comment about beauty being in the ordinary i think like a there's a this is not in the book but there's an andrew wyeth painting and of course he's famous for the the one of the girl in the field looking toward the barn. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the title right now, but Wyeth has a, so many paintings of still life. And one of my favorites is just a painting of a window and there's light coming through the window onto the wall. 
So it's just a table mm -hmm. and, a, and a window and light coming through the window onto the wall. And it is incredible. <laughs> like, I mean, incredible. And what's more ordinary than sitting at breakfast and seeing light on the wall, mm -hmm. right? Like right now, even as I'm talking to you, like there's, there's light on your shoulder. Mm -hmm. Like th that's beautiful. And to see truly is to realize that's the same glory that Moses saw and that Jesus revealed to his disciples and that we, to be in touch with reality would be just as awed by that light through the window on the wall mm -hmm. as, you know, some masterpiece, mm -hmm. sculpture or painting, etc. I mean, I think that's, that's the real, mm -hmm. that's when, when, when we start to be sanctified to use old Christian language for this, like when our imaginations start to be attuned yeah. to the spirit then yes, the beautiful is everywhere, right? Even though it's not all hitting us with the same force and it has, doesn't have the same outcome, right? It might not pull me or push me. It might simply ground me. Who knows, right? right? But yeah, that that's the wonder of it to mm -hmm. me. And, and a testament again to, I think, the kind of God Jesus is. Mm -hmm. What might we do? I mean, part of when we're talking about beauty, it's this sense of being willing to be acted upon. Yes. But what might we do to maybe till some of that soil? Yeah. Make art. I, I think one one thing, another lie we've kind of bought into is that art is for geniuses, right? Art is, art is for people who are artists, quote unquote. And I do, I do think there are obviously people who are especially gifted. There's a way in which they're touched. But I think human beings are meant to make. Like we're meant to make good sentences. We're meant to make good meals. We're meant to make good conversation. And we should effort to that end, right? We should try if, if we're, and, and so much of our life pushes back against that, right? We're right. constantly, I, I don't want to buy into some neat, like craft art distinction here. I'm really influenced and I don't have to name all the influences, but I, I'm, I, I don't think we want to buy that, you know, some things are useful and other things are beautiful and some things are craft and other things are art. I, I don't mean that, but I do mean if you're going to have a conversation with someone, why not try to make it as artful as you can without being pretentious, without, without putting on airs, like how, how do you attend to what you're saying and what they're saying mm -hmm. in a way that is life giving and mm -hmm. is not simply reduced down to the mechanics of, communication theory or something mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i i think getting people to write poetry to to paint to draw to sculpt whatever whatever art they're drawn to dance sing you know take photographs like why not give yourself to that and try to be as good as, as you can be not so others will praise you for it because it, it probably won't be very good in some kind of objective sense but it can be good for you anyway. I think that's one of the things we can do. Another thing we can do is kind of attend to the artfulness of scripture. Mm. One of the things that does, that's most upsetting for me is I think I was raised by people and around people and have lived and worked with people who have a high view of scripture, but have almost no sense of the artfulness of scripture. They're mm -hmm. thinking, of scripture as a delivery mechanism for ideas, right? Like right. The, the scripture houses or boxes concepts or principles that we then take out of scripture and apply. 
and mm-hmm. and it it is a kind of violence to the text uh, where we we have no appreciation at all for the skill that went into crafting these stories and these songs and these proverbs etc and i think if we were better readers of scripture we would be drawn into the artfulness that i think is the spirit and, and so I, those are a couple places i would say to start mm. Thank you. Thanks for making it practical too. I love it. Um, well, unfortunately we have to conclude, but I'd love to chat longer, but w- I would love to hear your laundry routine as we close. What does that look like? And the reason just, you know, I, I asked this question is, you know, as we are trying to connect the dots between all of these ideas and things that matter, we also want to talk about, yeah, the, the ways in which we meet God in our mundane household chores. So what does your laundry routine look like? Well, so I'm I'm not a very competent adult, I should say. Like I'm not, I'm not terribly functional. Me neither. I would agree with that assessment <laughs> for myself as well. <laughs> Thankfully, my wife is um, a, a highly functional person, and so at the end of the day, she mostly rescues me. I make sure that I keep my things put away and and hung up, and I do have a little bit of. I shouldn't make light of this, and I don't mean to, but there, there is a, a kind of obsessive compulsive side to me at times in which I can go for a while pretty messy, and then I will have a, like a storm of, okay, I've got to get everything washed, everything in the right drawer, in the right order, everything hung, color-coordinated, all the coats on this side, and so on. So I, it's, a, it's pretty sporadic, honestly, for me. Yeah. <laughs> pretty sporadic. Depends which... Which side of the coin, chaos or order that you're you're That's looking into? That's precisely right. I mean, the and I do, and thankfully, you know, my wife is incredibly gracious. I mean, we've over twenty years of marriage, we've worked out a kind of okay. When you're on the chaos side of the swing, this is what chaos I can accept, right? So here's what chaos would look like. Right. And here's what order would look like. <laughs> and this is past. This is past. <laughs> Absolutely. <when> we're done. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's fantastic. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your thoughtful book and ways of helping us understand such large metaphysical topics in ways that actually matter for our everyday lives too. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris Green. I encourage you to pick up a copy of his book, All Things Beautiful, an aesthetic Christology. And I know that those are some really big terms, but I trust that after listening to our conversation, you are ready and excited to dig in to his helpful book. You can find a link in the show notes. And I want to leave you, as I do each week, with one small step. And I would encourage you to simply experience beauty and to experience beauty in the arts, whether that's you grab a copy of a poem by Wendell Berry or Mary Oliver or Denise Lovertov, whether it is you are excited to watch a movie and to think about it as art and to remember that the end of all beauty is Jesus himself and Jesus gets to actually say what is beautiful. So experience a piece of art, and I hope that through that experience that you are drawn more and more into the life of our beautiful Savior. Thank you for being here, friends. As always, it is such a pleasure. Just a few reminders. 
A Spacious Life is available wherever books are sold. It's also now available on audio. You can grab a link in the show notes. And I've also made available a little workbook for you called A Spacious New Year. And then coming up in the beginning of March, as Lent begins, there's going to be a new offering called Walk at a Human Pace. It's going to be a little companion for you on your walks over the 40 days of Lent to begin to experience some good questions as you move your body and learn to walk at a human pace. Thanks for being here. Remember, big things matter, but so does the laundry. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.